It's been a, a tough couple of weeks just in the news. You know, you have, we have the, the war in Ukraine entering its third month, and uh, obviously, you know, the shooting in Buffalo uh, that killed 10, you know, black people at a grocery store by white supremacists, the, the horrific shooting in, in Texas, uh, 19 kids and two teachers lost their lives, and, and like just, just thinking and processing through it, man, my heart has just been totally grieved, to- totally grieved. You know, I, I'm grieved by the, the senseless loss of life. Um, in Proverbs 6, uh, it, it talks about, there, it, it actually gives a list of six things that, that the Lord hates. You don't have to think about God hating things, the six things that the Lord hates, and one of them is the hands that shed innocent blood. I, I, I'm, I'm grieved by, like, the response that we see to these tragedies. You know, it, it's, it, it's hard because people so quickly run to their side, to their corner that they um, often run to. You know, you have some people on one side saying, all right, you know, we, we, we need to uh, enact more gun laws. We need to repeal the Second Amendment. We have people on the other side saying, no, no, we, we shouldn't restrict gun laws at all, guns don't kill people, people kill people, and, and in the end, it's, it's easy to feel hopeless, you know, because like, all right, we have another tragedy, another something like this happens, and, and everybody runs to their corners, and in the end, nothing seems to get done about it to begin with. And, and honestly, I'm also kind of grieved because it, it, I, it, it seems almost impossible for us to admit that two things can be true at the same time. Yes, people can have evil intent in, in their heart, you know, and, and, and they are the ones that, that bear the responsibility for the, the death of, of innocence that, you know, guns didn't kill those kids and those teachers, the, the gunmen did, but the fact also that firearms are so easily accessible make it that much easier for a person of evil intent to do things like that, and, and both things are true, they're not mutually exclusive either, and and I think that as a church, not just Livingstone's church, but just the church in general, the church overall, you know, we should be leading the way in this, you know, and instead of retreating to, you know, our political corners that we often align with, that we can acknowledge that, you know, both sides are right, both sides are wrong as well, and, and ultimately that we can demand that we find a place in the middle for it. And, and Scripture talks about, there's a, there's a word that Scripture uses often, to describe uh, moments like this, and it's a, a time of, of lamenting. You know, there, in fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, and and lamenting really, really is kind of an expression of deep regret, of sorrow, of of grief. That we can repent as 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 a people, as as a nation. We join in the sorrow and the suffering of those that have lost so much, um, and we can pray for God's mercy and just declare our our faith and our trust. And our hope is in, in Him and in Him alone as we try to pursue things that are going to hopefully eliminate uh, things like that happening in the future that we just call out to God and we just trust Him. So I just want to open this morning and just have us pray and then we're going to get into our message uh, today. So Lord, we, God, we just come to you with heavy hearts this morning, Lord. We come as a, as a church family declaring just our, our, our ultimate trust in you, Lord, that we know that you are the hope of the world, God, that there is no other way. And, and God, for those that, that just lost loved ones, just senselessly, Lord, God, we just pray for your incredible comfort and your incredible grace to be theirs right now. God, that, that in the middle of, of, of them having no answers to 
to these questions that they're dealing with, Lord, that your presence would be theirs. God, that they would feel and know and experience your comfort like never before. And God, as a people, God, we, we just repent. We, we're sorry, God, for the, for the inaction that has taken place over time and time again when things like this have occurred, Lord. God, we're, we're sorry, Lord. And we just, we just lay ourselves before you and ask you, God, to have mercy on, on us, on, on, our, on us as a country, on our people, Lord, and that you would just give us courage and wisdom as we move forward, Lord, that we can truly chart a, a new way forward for our, for our nation, for us as a people. We don't have to have it be the same old way that it's always been, but God, that we would find middle ground, that we can work together, that, that, that those things are not mutually exclusive, Lord. And so, God, we just uh, commit this to you. God, we commit our kids to you, our families to you, our lives to you, Lord. We just trust you. We love you. We hope in you alone, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, we're going to start uh, a new series this morning, and we're going to be walking through the book of Galatians, and we're calling this series Be Free. That, that is kind of the common theme that goes through the entire book of Galatians, and, and we often do topical series uh, here at Living Stones, and, but I also enjoy being able to take time to actually walk our way through a book of the Bible together. And Galatians, if you're unfamiliar, Galatians is in the New Testament, It was uh, meaning that it was written after the, the time of Jesus, and it was, it was written by the Apostle Paul, who uh, Paul wrote um, a, a large section, a large portion of the New Testament. And the, the word apostle really just means uh, an, an ambassador, someone who is sent, a, a messenger. And, and Paul, like his job, like he went and he planted churches. He was a, he was a church planter, and, and, and after his conversion experience, he just received some divine revelation from Jesus himself. And he spent the rest of his life traveling around the known world, sharing, sharing with people about Jesus, planting churches all around. And, and uh, Paul, he actually went on four different missionary journeys where, where he set out and he started planting the, these different churches. And, and what he would do is after he planted these churches, he would move on, but then he would correspond. He would write letters to these different churches that he had planted. He would write letters of encouragement. Sometimes he would write letters um, correcting maybe some uh, misunderstandings, some, some false teachings, things like that. And the, these letters are often called epistles. And, and really, they were kind of to help teach these new churches, what does it look like? How, how do we actually be the church? What, what does it mean, to, you know, like we're, essentially they were starting something brand new and, and Paul wrote these letters as, as a way of saying, all right, this is how we, we live. This is how the, the church operates, how we function as, as believers. And, and the names of these epistles, they come from either the, the cities by which Paul was writing. And so like the, the letter of Philippians was read, written to the church in Philippi and the, the letter to the Romans was written to the church in Rome. Or he wrote them to specific people, so like Titus or First and Second Timothy, he wrote to specific leaders of those churches. And if you don't mind putting the map up, I want, I want to just kind of show you where Galatia is. Galatia is actually in modern-day Turkey. You can see it kind of in the, the central part of you know, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey here. And, and, and Galatia really is a, a large land area that's got several major cities with, within it that Paul visited. And this letter would have been sent to multiple, the, multiple different cities in 
Galatians. So what I want to do is I want to begin at, at the very beginning of Paul's letters, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, where he, he introduces himself. He gives his, his greeting that he often does at the start of his epistles. And he begins, he says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. So he, he's, he's got a group of people that, that he is with. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul often opened, in, in fact, every one of Paul's letters he opens up with a greeting somewhat similar to this, where he's, he, he's expressing who he is, where the letter's coming from, kind of his credentials in a way, but also just a, a reminder of just who God is, about what it is that God has done, that, that he's not writing this on his own accord, he's writing this on behalf of God, that he's speaking for, for God in these moments. And, and this morning, we're going to focus really on the first half of chapter 1, because if you read through Galatians chapter 1, the second part of uh, Galatians chapter 1 Paul's really kind of reviewing his, um, his credentials, his, his bona fides, uh, in, in a way where he's kind of given his autobiography, why he has uh, grounds in which, why he has street cred in order to write and, and talk to the Galatian church. But the, the next two verses I, I want to go to, like Paul wastes no time getting into the reason why he was writing, the reason why he was writing to the churches in Galatia. And in, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and instead are turning to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Like Paul is saying, he's like, all right, so what happened? Like, I, I'm astonished. I, I was there. I was sharing with you uh, about Jesus and, and, and all, all the, the, the grace of God, all that that entails. And he says, and you've abandoned that. You, you've started to, to walk away from it. You've turned away from the true gospel where you're saved by grace through faith alone. And he says, you're turning to a different gospel, which actually is no gospel at all. He says, what happened? Why have you abandoned the things that we were talking about? And he goes on to say, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That there were people that, that came in after Paul left, after he planted the church, there were people that came in and started teaching something different than what Paul had originally taught them. Like if you can put that map of Galatia back, back up, like I said, it's in modern-day Turkey. And in 237 BC, the, the Celts from like Central Europe actually invaded and they took over this area of, of modern-day Turkey Today and, and so the, the people that lived here, the people that resided here, they were not Jewish believers. They, they were very much Gentiles. They, they were people that previous to this had, had practiced often pagan religions, and, and they didn't hold to the, the Jewish laws, the Jewish dietary restrictions. They actually probably thought that most of those things were, were very odd, very foreign to them. But there were Jews that lived in Galatia as well. Paul actually refers to them, he calls them Judaizers. And, and these Judaizers, Judaizers that lived in Galatia, they began to teach the, the Gentiles, that, that these new Gentile believers, that, all right, hey, it's great that you put your faith in Jesus. It's great you put your faith in Christ. But now, 
If you really want to be in the faith, if you really want to be within the church, within the family of God, then you, you, not only do you have to put your faith in Christ, not only do you have to believe in this Jesus, but you also need to start following. You kind of need to prove your faith by following the, the Jewish law, these Jewish dietary restrictions, and especially concerning circumcision, where, where circumcision, it was, circumcision was the, the sign of the covenant between God and, and the Jewish people, God and the Israelites. And, and so they, they really kind of, the, the Judaizers, they felt, all right, if you were uncircumcised, you weren't really a part of the family of God. You weren't, you weren't, really, uh, uh, you weren't really one of us. And so if you want to become one of us, if you really want to uh, be a part of the family of God, if you really want to be part of the way, not only do you have to put your faith in Christ, but you also have to undergo, men, men you have to undergo a little bit of a surgery too. And, and it's probably, you know, it's easy for these, these Jewish believers, these Judaizers to say that because they were circumcised when they were eight days old. That was the, the Jewish tradition. When, when you were eight, you had that surgery done, you were circumcised, and you know, they, thankfully they had forgotten about it by then. But now they were telling these grown men these Gentile grown men that had come to faith in Christ. All right, now you need to be circumcised. And you can see why this would cause some tension in, in, this, early, in this early church. Like, ain't no guy going to a church where at the membership class they're sharpening a knife. I, I, it's just not, not going to happen, you know? And, and, and let me just say this. If you ever think the Bible's boring, you're just not reading enough of it, because I'm going to give you a sneak preview in Galatians chapter 5. Paul is so frustrated with these Judaizers. He's so frustrated with those that are saying, all right, if you really want to be a believer, you need to, you need to be circumcised. He actually says, all right, all, all those Judaizers that are stirring all this up, he says, I just wish they would go the whole way and just castrate themselves. Like, like just like, use your imagination. Like, he just said, I, like, I, I love that. I, I just... Paul's a great guy. Like, I, I just, like, read chapter 5. It's pretty awesome. But, but going back to, to chapter 1, Paul's addressing, and he's trying to resolve this, this age-old question that, that's, that, that we've wrestled with from the very beginning, from the very beginning of time. And this, this is the question that we're going to kind of try to process and work through and talk through this morning. And the question is, how am I going to become godly? Like, what, what do I do to become godly? What, what do I, how do I go about doing this? And this question has been one that has resonated ever since Adam and Eve. And throughout history, we humans, like, we've tried all different ways, all different types of things in order to answer this question. And the sad reality is that often, more often than not, we end up answering this question wrong. What do I do to become godly? And, and what Paul's trying to tell them is that you become godly by putting your, your, your faith, your hope in Christ alone. There's nothing more that needs to be added to it. Allowing his, his Holy Spirit to speak to you and convict you and lead you and move you. He said, that's how you become godly. The, the Judaizers, the ones that Paul was pushing back against, they answered that question by saying, yes, you need to put your faith in Christ, but then you need to follow these other Jewish laws, you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the dietary restrictions, and, and there's this ongoing tension between these two mindsets. It, it happened at the very beginning, it happened during Paul's time, and it's still happening today. 
these two camps, one of relationship and one of religion. And I, and I want to take a look back to Genesis chapter 2 at, at the very beginning. Like, where did this tension start? Where did this tension begin between these two camps? Between religion and relationship. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, I, and I've, I've poked fun at like the, the children's Bibles and stuff that we see you know, before, and, and they really are a fantastic resource, but I do think they've massively oversimplified things as well. That often when we see Adam and Eve, when we think of them, all right, we, we see them standing in the garden. There's one big tree and it's got all kinds of apples on it. And Eve's holding an apple, usually with a bite out of it. But that's not what Scripture actually teaches. Scripture says there were actually two trees in the middle of the garden. There was the tree of life and there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I, I believe these two trees are kind of a dividing line between the ways that we can answer that question about how do we become godly. There's a choice that has to be made between those two. And Genesis 2 goes on in verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat from it, you will certainly die. Like God speaks to Adam and Eve and he says, All right, anything you want, you, you can eat from the tree of life if you desire. My one rule, my one expectation, the one thing I'm asking is not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then in chapter 3 is, is where the fall happens, where, where, we, where we see the serpent come in and start tempting Eve. And, and this is where the line between the two is drawn, between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say that you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Now, side note, like that's not what God actually said. And the serpent replies, you will, not, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and I want to point out something about this. In, in Satan's temptation of Eve, he's not appealing to her rebelliousness. He, he's not saying to Eve, oh, you know what? God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's always trying to rob you of fun. You know what? You deserve this. You should do it. Why don't you just take this, this, the, a bite from this fruit, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? No, in, in, in Satan's temptation, he's actually appealing to, to Eve's godliness. Of saying, all right, hey, if you eat this, you're going to be just like God. You're, you're going you're to be just like him. You, you are going to, your eyes are going to be open, and you'll be like God. He, he's not appealing to her rebelliousness. He's actually appealing to her godliness. He said, all right, if you want to become godly, if you want to become like God, you'll eat this fruit. By, by doing, through, through knowledge, through intellect, 
And he's deceiving her. He, he's trying to, to appeal to her godliness in a way. And, and I would argue that what Paul is, is combating against the Judaizers is the same thing. Like that they were trying, the, the Judaizers, they were trying to appeal to the Gentiles' godliness as well. They were, they were trying to say, all right, if you want to become godly, if you want to become like God, these are the things you have to do. They were kind of presenting the, this false narrative in a way. But Genesis 3 goes on and says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then, there, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. There, there was a choice that was laid before them. You, you, there was, you had a decision that you could make two different trees by which that they could approach God and approach their lives through the tree of life or through the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when we approach God through the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there are some inevitable things that will always happen. Like it, it always produces the same thing. It always produces guilt, shame, and condemnation. When we approach God through the mindset of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it will always produce shame, guilt, and condemnation. Because we can never do enough. We can never know enough. We can never have enough faith. And when we don't, that shame and that guilt starts to set in. So thinking about this, how we approach our own faith. When we think about how we are going to come to God, come to God we, we have kind of this same choice. We can approach God through the lens, through, through life in, in the tree of life, or through the lens of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is what Paul was fighting against in his day. This is something that we still have to fight against even in our day here. And, and I want to break it down for, for us a little bit. And, and so if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, that one of, those, one of those two options focuses on what you do. When we, when we approach God, when we approach our, our faith journey through the, the, the lens of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we focus on what it is that we do. And, and this is what the Judaizers that Paul was so upset with, what they were pushing. When, when we view our faith journey through that tree of knowledge of, of good and evil, we focus on, all right, what, what do I do? God is pleased with me when I do this. God is upset with me when I do that. And, and so if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to prove it by doing certain things. You're, you're going you're to pray for an hour a day. You're going to read through your Bible in, in, in a year. You're going to give 10% of your income to the church. You're going to serve on a ministry team. You're going to give to the poor. I mean, like you name it, we could go on and on and on. These, these religious duties that, that we've all heard, we've all probably felt the draw towards at one time or another. All right, I'm, I'm going to prove my faith in God by doing X, Y, and Z. And those are all good. Like, I would encourage you, yeah, to do those things. But those aren't the things that are going to save us. When we approach our faith journey through the lens of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it focuses on what I do, what you do. But on the other end, instead of focusing on what I do, the other one through the tree of life focuses on what Jesus has done. Instead of focusing on, on, on me and, and what I do, the other way that we can approach faith is, is focusing on what Jesus has already done. When, when, we, when we approach God through this way, we, we don't become godly 
through anything that we've done, not through anything that we can accomplish, not through any good deeds or good works or, or anything on our own. I talked a little bit about this last week, but there's, there's nothing more that needs to be added to the gospel of grace. It's already been done. Jesus has already accomplished it all. He's paid it all. He's done it all alone. And, and, and Paul emphatically says in Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7, he says that if you tried to add anything of your own to the work that Jesus did, you're believing a false gospel. Paul said it, it perverts the gospel. In fact, he even says it's no gospel at all. If you, if you, if you have this mindset and this idea, all right, I, I'm not only am I saved through faith, but then I have to do these things to, to kind of prove it. If you add anything to it, Paul says it's no gospel at all. And Jesus, he encountered this same mindset too. The, the same idea of, of approaching God through the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The, the Pharisees, like so often they were convinced that their knowledge and their good works is what saved them and set them apart. And over and over again, Jesus repudiated this idea. In, in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, you study the scriptures diligently, which, yeah, should we do? Absolutely. But he says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. He's saying, all right, you, you think that, that you're going to inherit eternal life because you've memorized all the scriptures, because you know all the right answers. He said, no, no, no. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Like how much you know, how much we do, that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants you. He wants us. Approaching Approaching God through the tree of life of, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil focuses on what I do. But approaching God through the tree of life focuses on what Jesus has already done. I, I would say the next distinction between the two ways that we kind of approach our, our faith journey is that one focuses on getting God's approval. This is similar to the first one, but it, it is slightly different. When viewing the world through the tree of knowledge of good and evil, like not only do we feel that our works and our knowledge will save us, but they're also going, God's going to be pleased. He's going to approve of us, that, that we have to feel like we have to constantly try to earn God's love. And this is, this is a mindset that has been pervasive in virtually every religion, every culture throughout time, that God or the gods are mad, and so we need to do things to try to appease them. We need to try to do things to earn approval, earn favor, earn love from God. But viewing our faith journey through the tree of life says that we're not focusing on trying to earn God's approval, but instead we focus on receiving God's love. It, it's, we're, not, we're not working to get God's approval. We're not working to get God's love. We just have to sit back and receive it. He loved us before we were born, before the, the foundations of the world. God knew you. God loved you. And there, you, we've said this before. There's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us any less. He loves us because of who we are. Not by anything that we might do. Not by any knowledge that we might attain. John writes in, in 1 John that we only have the, the capacity to love because God first loved us. Like, but we, we can't do anything. God loved us first, before we did anything, before we've, we've 
read any scripture, before we've memorized any verses, before we've prayed, before we've served, before we've given, like before any of that. God loved us first. Any, any good works that we do, anything that comes out of it, is only because God first loved us. We don't have to earn it. We just have to receive it. And then approaching our faith journey through the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and that one focuses on external duty. Like our, our faith journey is, it's going to be miserable if we approach it through the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If, if we, because, because it's going to, it's going to uh, in, encapsulate for us an external duty that, that because we because we're, we're trying to live a life that, that's honoring to God, we, we have this sense of duty and obligation. That, all right, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I must do these things. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I must do this. And, and, and for the record, like that's a terrible reason to do anything when you do it out of, out of duty or obligation. Like I, I realize this is probably going to make me sound like, a, like an old curmudgeon, but it's one of the reasons I hate Valentine's Day. Like I, I, I don't enjoy Valentine's Day because, or, or Sweetest Day for that matter. Like another just, God, God bless people that do love it, all right? So if you do, I'm not judging. But I'm saying, I'm just saying for me, like I want to do something special to love my wife and let her know she's special to me, not because it's February 14th or whatever day Sweetest Day is. I, I don't even know. Not because it's what I'm supposed to do, not because... I have like this duty or obligation or cultural expectations. I want to do it because it's in my heart to do. Not just because I feel a duty to do so. And so approaching God, approaching our, our, our faith life through the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we have this, this external duty that we feel. But when we approach God through the tree of life, it's actually an internal desire. That we have an internal desire. It's, I'm, I'm doing something not because I have to, not because I feel obligated to. No, I get to do these things because it's a part of who I am on the inside. It's a difference between the motivation behind why we do the things we do. What's the, what's, what's the real motive there? Serving God is not about doing things we're, because we're supposed to do Him. I, like, I, I honor and I serve God because... I have an internal desire to do so. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 and 12, says, This is love for God to obey His commands. But His commands are not burdensome. He who has the Son of life, excuse me, He who has the Son has life. He who did not have the Son of God does not have life. It's like we, we honor and we follow and we obey Jesus, not out of duty and obligation, but because of a love that we have for him. It comes down to that motivation. So I, I want to close with, with just kind of like hitting on three real short things to, that can help us, help us approach our, our faith journey, help us approach God through the tree of life and not through the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is, this is the battle that Paul was, was arguing against in Galatians. This is a battle that Jesus talked uh, about. And, and really, I want to say like this first one is going to sound super simplistic, but it's to fall in love with Jesus. Like when, when we give ourselves the space to stop and to rest and to ponder and to think about the goodness of God, 
to think about just how amazing he is, all the things that he has done for us, the way that he's served us and taken care of us. He saved us. He's protected us. Like when we give ourselves the space and the time to sit and to meditate and, and really absorb the goodness of God, we're going to fall in love with him. When, when we meditate on his character and who he is, it, it makes it so much easier for us to fall in love with him. I, I think it's one of the reasons that God said he wanted us to take a Sabbath. He wants us to take a rest. I want you to cease doing, and I want you just to be. Just be with me. Think on me. Meditate on me. And, and when we do, we're going to begin to operate. We're going to be able to, to uh, uh, view our, our faith walk and our faith journey through the tree of life. John said in, or excuse me, Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And for so long, some of you may have heard me say this before, but for so long, I viewed this statement as a directive. All right. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you're going to prove it by doing this. If you love me, you're going to, you're going to obey what I said. But how it actually reads is, is a statement of fact, not necessarily a directive. All right. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's a statement of fact, not, not a directive. All right. If you love me, you're going to do this. You're going to prove it by doing this. No, no, no. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. I, I'm not worried about it. Jesus is telling us, he's like, you're not going to, I don't want you to, to, to follow me. I don't want you to love me. I don't want you to serve me out of, out of duty or obligation, trying to please me, trying to appease me, trying to get me to love you. Not at all. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Those, those, those good works, those good things, yeah, that's going to flow out. Those, that'll be a natural byproduct of the love you have for me in your heart. I don't want you doing those things to earn it. You already have it. So now I just want you to, I just want you to live it. I just want you to do it. The, the second thing I would say about living in the tree of life would be to not allow condemnation. Not allow condemnation. Because condemnation is a, is a tool of the enemy. It, it's, it's a natural byproduct of living and approaching God through the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like when, when we mess up, when we fall short, when we miss the mark, and, and God knows we do often, when we approach God through the tree of life of good and evil, we're going to start feeling condemnation, feeling shame. And, and there's, there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. There's, there's a difference between the two. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is actually a blessing. It alerts us when, when we've gotten off base of recognizing, all right, I, I've done something wrong. I, I've messed up here. And conviction is really like a godly sorrow. It's, all right, I, I don't want to continue down that path. Condemnation doesn't speak so much to the behavior or to the action. It speaks to the person. Oh, I'm such a failure. Oh, I'm never going to get this right. God could never love me because I did that. That's That's condemnation. And, and, if, and if, if, if we're feeling, if we're experiencing, if we're thinking thoughts of condemnation, we can know we're, we're living in the wrong tree. Romans 8, chapter, one, or chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. What, what Paul is writing to the, to the church in Rome, he, he's saying, all right, if you're living in the tree of life, you don't have to experience condemnation anymore. Jesus has set you free. Conviction is a blessing. It points us towards him. Condemnation is a curse that actually points us away from God. And lastly, this is the last thing I want to say, is that we need to make this choice every day. Like we have a daily choice to make about how I'm going to approach God, how I'm going to answer that question, how do I become godly? Am I going to approach it through the tree of life or through the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We get to choose where we're going to live. We get to choose the way that we're going to approach God. Am I going to approach God viewing him through the tree of life or through the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19 says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. He's saying, now choose life. It, it, essentially what's being said here is, all right, you, 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 have a, you have a choice, you have an option. Every single day we have this, this choice, we have this option. How am I going to approach God? Am I going to approach him through the lens of religion? Or am I going to approach him through the lens of relationship? Through the, through the lens of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life? And God is saying, I'm, I'm not going to force anybody. Like the choice is up to you. I, I've set the table before you and I want you to choose. I want you to decide. And so as we close our message today, I wanted us to take communion in, in response to what we've talked about this morning. Because Jesus invites us to the table. Jesus has set that table before us. Nothing, nothing that needs to be done on our part at all. The, the, the juice that represents Jesus' blood and the bread that represents Jesus' body. Like, that's it. There, there is nothing more. There's nothing we bring to the table. There's nothing, there's nothing we, we bring that can save us, that can earn God's favor, God's blessing, any of that. What, what, what Paul was so adamant about, about pushing back on the Judaizers, pushing back on following the Old Testament law, pushing back on circumcision. He said, no, no, you don't add anything to what Jesus has already done. His body, his blood, that's all there is. There's, there is nothing more. And we can come to him with hearts that recognize it is all about him. It's got nothing to do with us at all. And so I'm going to pray in just a moment. And as I do, the ushers are going to come forward. They're going to set out the communion elements here. And as we sing this last song together, I want to invite you to come forward. We practice an open communion here at Living Stones. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is invited. And as we take communion together this morning, I, I, want, I just want you to, to, to have in your mind, I want you to be thinking and reflecting about that Jesus is the only reason. We, we, we play no part in it. We receive it. But we, we don't add anything to the glory, to the beauty of what it is that Jesus did. And so would you bow your heads as, as we pray and then the ushers will come forward. Lord, God, we are so grateful for you and we love you and we thank you. God, for who you are. We thank you for your body. We thank you for your blood.
God, we thank you for the fact that, that we don't have to try to earn your love. We don't have to try to earn your favor. There's nothing that we do that, that adds anything to it. You, you've already done it all. And so, Lord, for, for those times where we've felt tempted, those times where we felt tempted like we needed to, to add something to it, where we feel, felt like we had to earn your favor, where we had to, to not just put our faith in you, but then we had to prove it by doing certain things, Lord, that you would just help us to block that out. God, that, that our motivation would not be anything other than, God, my, my, my actions, my, my, it's just going to be a response to you, to your incredible, amazing love that you demonstrated by giving your body and giving your blood for each one of us. So this morning, as we come forward, as we receive communion today, God, I help you, God, I ask that you help us to remember, to remind ourselves that it really is all about you. There's nothing we add, there's nothing we bring to it. But God, we just graciously receive what it is you've done for each one of us, Lord. God, we thank you. God, we love you so very much. In Jesus' name, amen.